Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the 10th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing Richard Mulcahy and the Irish War for Independence. Again, I want to reaffirm that this podcast supports Black Lives Matter. Please look around in your neighborhoods for ways to help support the new civil rights movements. Um, in Chicago specifically, there are a couple of things you can do. One is that you can keep calling your mayor and aldermen to pass CPAC, which is the uh, Community Police Accountability Council. It basically, basically gives the people the right to hold the police accountable as opposed to relying on the mayor's office or the police union or the corrupt legal system. Right now, you need to call and email the mayor, um, and, but you also really need to call and email your alderman. Right now, we need 26 aldermen to pass the bill, 34 to make it veto-proof. I think right now, only 14 aldermen have expressed support for the bill. Um, so call, email, hound, any way possible your alderman to get that to pass. The Chicago Alliance is asking us to call Chief Chief Judge Evans, Cook County State Attorney Kim Fox, and Governor Pritzker to depopulate the Cook County Jail and provide treatment, testing, and release to the incarcerated population, including torture survivors and the wrongfully convicted. Um, some good news from Chicago is that this Columbus statue was pulled down, uh, but the mayor has said that it's temporary. We can't forget that Miracle Boy had to have her fucking teeth knocked out for that to happen. So, or call them there. And while you're thanking her for tearing down the statue, make it clear that we want it to remain torn down and we do not want to see that stupid thing brought back up. From Movement for Black Lives, they are hosting a national convention which will be focused on celebrating black culture, black political power building, and a public policy agenda that will set forth an affirmative vision for all black lives. It's happening virtually August 28th. Um, to register, go to blacknovember.org, and I'll include that link in the episode description. Additionally, they are asking us to uh, call our representatives to ask them to support the BREATHE Act. It's a bill that will divest federal resources from incarceration and policing and end criminal legal system harms. It will invest the money into new approaches to improve the community. Um, it will allocate new money to building healthy, sustainable, equitable communities for all peoples and it will hold officials accountable and enhance self-determination of black communities. To read more, go to the website, breathe, B-R-E-A-T-H-E, act.org. And again, I will include uh, that link in the episode description. Just give you guys a heads up in case you didn't know, there are federal officers tearing apart Portland right now, and right now they're also in Chicago. The mayor has said that they're supposed to work through the attorney's office, but we all know that that's bullshit. So be careful out there. Don't talk to the feds. Don't add them on. Don't interact with them if you can avoid it. And just be safe out there. And then finally, we got 100 days to the election. How are you voting? Do you know how you're voting? Are you registered to vote? Do you, are your friends registered to vote? Um, if you are registered to vote, how are, what are some other things you can do to help? Well, you can uh, text and phone bank. You can send postcards. Indivisible South Chicago um, is doing a stellar job getting postcards out to people. And then there's also Three States, One Mission, which is an indivisible initiative which is focusing on winning Wisconsin and Michigan and Illinois. So now we will begin our episode uh, talking about Richard Mulcahy and his role as Chief of Staff of the IRA.
The military responsibility over the IRA was divided amongst three men, Cathal Broder, Michael Collins, and Richard Mulcahy. Collins oversaw intelligence, although he also worked closely with Mulcahy in crafting a grand strategy. Broder was the Minister of Defense, nominally uh, Mulcahy's superior, also responsible for the development of grand strategy, and was the bridge between the doll and the army. Mulcahy was responsible for everything else. Mulcahy's main focus during the war was organization and discipline. This seems to be partially because that was his natural strength, and partially because the very nature of the conflict prevented him from exerting control over the IRA forces. As we mentioned in many of our episodes, GHQ's authority over the ground troops was tenuous at best, and oftentimes they were responding to developments on the ground as opposed to directing the course of events. Still, this doesn't mean that GHQ or Mulcahy's contributions to the war effort should be written off, it just means this episode will deal more with the internal IRA's bureaucracy than on the ground fighting. You've been warned. Mulcahy started his career as chief of staff torn between two conflicting impulses. The Dahl, led by De Valera and channeled by Broder, wanted to slow down the pace of violence, believing they were not yet at a stage of outright war. Mulcahy, at the time, supported this stance, most likely because he was looking at the monstrous lift that was needed to organize the Irish volunteers into an army. Uh, which put him in direct conflict with some of his IRA commanders. He also worried what effect intense violence may have on the support of the population. Mulcahy had been against the Sola headbed attack, and Dan Breen and Seamus Treacy never trusted him after the dressing down he gave them following the attack and their escape from South Tipperary to Dublin. At the same time, he and Collins were devising organizational structures that would allow active commanders to take the initiative. He and Collins decided that the more enthusiastic officers should get larger areas of responsibility, a philosophy that sometimes conflicted with the orders Mulcahy himself would send officers, since he was always preaching caution, but rewarded the most daring officers with more responsibility. By September 1919, the Dahl had been declared an illegal entity, and Mulcahy was no longer charged of slowing hostilities down. Instead, he now encouraged attacks and tried to ensure the IRA's efforts were coordinated. He required his commanders to write monthly reports of their activities and to submit plans of action to GHQ to be approved, and yet he struggled to keep up with local actions, and one can see him learning this new trade of war throughout 1919 and 1920. This can be illustrated by his naive suggestion in August 1920 that the IRA units should call for the British troops to surrender first before attacking, thereby eliminating the element of surprise. Some of the commanders would feel that GHQ was disconnected from the reality of things on the ground, and cared more about reports than actual fighting. Some of this was true. Mulcahy rarely had occasion to travel to the front lines, and his main form of communication with his men was via the reports. But again, this shouldn't take away from the structure and military pride and ethos he was able to infuse into the IRA. Additionally, while he was never considered warm, he had an affectionate relationship with many of his officers. For example, the officer commanding of the 3rd Southern Division wrote to Mulcahy asking for a book on explosives. And according to this quote I found from Marianne Valulius, the officer wrote, I know that it is not proper to communicate with you for literature, etc., but I feel that no other officer at GHQ would pay such attention to a matter of this kind. Another quote I found from Marianne Valulius' biography was from Sean O'Murthel, who would write, My school is that of Collins. We were a happy, carefree lot who, in the hardest of times, should be found carelessly congregated at one or another of our various haunts, of Mulcahy and MacMahon quartermaster general, later to be chief of staff, and their work, I knew practically all there was to know, but I come to regard them as stern, silent workers who scorned pleasure and frivolity, and who had enslaved themselves to their respective tasks. 
Once I began to work and live with them, I realized the greatness of their outlook, their tireless devotion to their great task, and their fairness to all within the limits of their responsibilities. As we discussed in episode 5, Moltke organized the IRA into battalion and brigade levels, allowing soldiers to elect their own officers, who occasionally interfered by trying to plug in IRB men if he felt the chosen officer was unreliable, and encourage initiative when it made sense to him. It seems that for the officers who knew how to approach him, he was a stable source of support. For example, when Terrace Matsweeney wanted to inspire an Easter Rising-like event in Cork in 1919, Mulcahy suggested he try a standard attack on three different barracks first. Of the three attacks, only one was completely successful, Hill, which we discussed in Episode 7. But provided Mulcahy and the IRA a template they could use for other attacks. He would later conduct an overview of the country to determine which districts should successfully follow towards example. By 1920, the IRC were forced out of small remote barracks and into larger fortified barracks closer to the major cities. While the ground troops may have felt that Mulcahy was disconnected from the front, he was obsessive over learning everything he could about his troops and was well aware of their supply shortages and discrepancies in leadership. Mulcahy frequently sent scathing letters to those he felt were not doing enough or who constantly called for supplies but did little to justify spreading their limited amount their way. While Mulcahy deserved his reputation of conservatism and caution, he wasn't above using unorthodox methods, and worked closely with Collins on many of the schemes the famous Corkman plan. He played a role in organizing the infamous squad, which answered Collins alone, although they were supposed to go to Mulcahy and Dick McKee if Collins wasn't around. He also helped with the planning of Bloody Sunday. Collins, Mulcahy, and Broadrow would handpick the targets, and then Mulcahy was charged with finding men from the Dublin Brigade to assist the squad in assassinating 14 suspected British agents on November 21, 1920. The attack ended in tragedy when the British retaliated by attacking a local football match, killing 14 and wounding 60, and when the British officers in the castle murdered Dick McKee, Connor Clune, and Pedro Clancy. Mulcahy also supported the incineration of more than 300 evacuated RIC barracks and 30 income tax offices in in the early 1920s. And once the flying columns proved themselves successful, he supported it wholeheartedly. We talked about the flying columns in episode 5, but a basic overview is that they were were small units, usually no more than 20 men, and they they would perform two kinds of attacks, auxiliary and independent attacks. Auxiliary is when a flying column was assigned to a battalion as extra support to local operations already taking place. Independent was when a flying column would conduct an immediate immediate action and delay was considered fatal. The type of independent attacks including harassing small military and police stations, pillaging enemy stores, interrupting communications, and eventually ambushes. The columns became an elite and coveted unit, and they were always on the run and relied on local and battalion support. While all of this was going on, Mulcahy and Collins were battling with Broda over the idea of an oath of allegiance to the doll. We spoke about this in episode 4, but basically Collins and Mulcahy resented political interference about something that to them seemed minutia. The army had already sworn an oath to fight for Irish independence. Why did it need to take another loyalty oath? Broda, however, worried about the growing military power Collins and Mulcahy were amassing at the time, and seemed to have feared an independent military more than the British. As we've mentioned before, his concerns are legitimate. You never want the political elements to be usurped by the military, and it seems that Collins and Mulcahy may have needlessly hurt relations by resist- resisting Broda arduously. Pedro Docoim, another biographer of Mulcahy, argues that the oath itself wasn't the real bone of contention between the three men, but it was really the new constitutional clause which stated that the Minister of National Defense, Broda, in consultation with the Executive Council, shall appoint and define the duties of the headquarters staff. As we've mentioned many times before, 
Moltkei, while truly believing that the army was subservient to the state, disliked when ministers interfered with army matters. One can only imagine his irritation growing by the end of 1920 when he and his staff are on the run from British officials trying to control a semi-independent groups of young men with itchy trigger fingers in the Irish countryside, planning assassinations, and now having to deal with whatever minutia the doll wanted to discuss. Malte took the threat to GHQ seriously, arranging it so that the whole staff never met. Instead, he would schedule meetings so that three members would meet at one time and ensure that members of the entire staff knew what the others were doing so there wouldn't be gaps in knowledge. His precaution did not prevent his own near arrests, and one time he barely managed to escape with his life, but left behind many important papers. This combined with the increased tempo of the war and the increased demand on his small staff may have convinced him that the IRA was in need for a reorg. So in 1921, he introduced the concept of the division. As we discussed in episode 5, divisions took demand of large swaths territory. This was to increase the likelihood of brigade and battalion coordination, making the IRA feel like it was growing into a real army, but still allowed and encouraged independent command, especially if something were to happen to GHQ. It also took some of the pressure off GHQ since they could now share some of the administrative burdens with the divisional headquarters. As 1920 progressed into 1921, Mulcahy's issues with Broder grew, with Mulcahy going so far as to cancel Broder's plans to try once again to assassinate British cabinet members. It is hard to decipher when their relationship turned so antagonistic, but it seemed to have been because of Mulcahy's close relationship with Collins and Mulcahy's territorial instinct over the army. As Mulcahy himself wrote, his, Broder's, trouble about me was that I was in a position that he couldn't get at Collins. I was chief of staff, and interfering in any way of Collins, or shifting Collins off the staff, he had me to deal with. I was just a stubborn kind of understanding rock, because I couldn't see the organization of GHU staff at that stage changing in any such way that Collins would be moved off it. It could have also been how he coped with stress, as Mulcahy was known to shut down and grow even snippier than usual when under immense pressure. Mulcahy and Collins also got into a row of Austin stats over stats handling of the police force. Mulcahy didn't want good IRA men siphoned off to fill its ranks, and one can imagine Collins worried about how it would affect his own intelligence and enforcement monopoly over Dublin. Then Liam Mellons was recalled from America and forced onto GHQ staff, and Mulcahy was at wit's end. Later in life, Mulcahy would, would blame the tensions on de Valera and his own difficult relationship with Collins. As 91 progressed, a split certainly occurred when de Valera, Rhoda, and Stats on one side, and Collins and Mulcahy on the other. But how much of this was purposeful on de Valera's part is hard to assess. It can be said with certainty that de Valera's attempts to send Collins to the U.S. and to launch a raid on four courts didn't ease relations or tensions at all. The men would compromise and raid the Custom House instead, tossing the IRA 80 men captured and 5 men killed. But we can't ignore the fact that there was also a real power struggle over control of the IRA. Whether Broder's concerns about Collins' potential takeover were legitimate or not, they were convincing enough to get de Valera, Stats, and Mellows involved. Collins and Mulcahy certainly enjoyed a monopoly over violence, as we have, and as we have seen, resented when people interfered with their plans. I don't think this suggests that Collins and Mulcahy were seriously planning to challenge the doll's power. Mulcahy's later actions suggest that this would be against the very core of his character, but it does suggest that they knew the doll were weak in a guerrilla setting, that real power lay in their hands, and that the doll's interference was more of an annoyance. This frustration may have grown when, from their perspective, Broder either didn't contribute at all, or when he did contribute, only made matters worse, and when de Valera had been in America since 1919. Who was he to dictate military strategy? 
It is certainly a worrisome and dangerous mindset for your military commanders to have, and does legitimize some of Broder's concerns. We must also consider what kind of man Broder was. He was a talented man and a very dedicated man. He also seemed to have a single-mindedness to him. And unlike Collins, who was charismatic and knew how to get his way, or even Mulcahy, who seemed to just know how to dig in and fight tooth and nail for whatever he wanted, Broder seemed to get involved sporadically, back out, get upset, get involved again, and then back out again. Um, I don't think you really see, you don't see the type of consistency in his approach to things that you see from Collins Mulcahy, and I think that hurts him as he tries to exert his will onto these two very difficult men. That's nothing against Broda or even a failing of Broda. I just don't know if he was the right man for the Minister of Defense position, and consequently, I don't know if Mulcahy was the right man to be his chief of staff. <laughs> there seems to have definitely been a uh, clash of personalities that only grew as Mulcahy grew closer with Collins. For whatever reason, Mulcahy seemed to get along with Collins, or at least understand how Collins liked to work. Whereas with Broda, he was just constantly bewildered and exasperated and caught off guard. Um, I think that's why, even though there are tensions between Broda and Collins and Mulcahy uh, throughout 1919 and 1920, they don't really skyrocket until De Valera returns from America. Because De Valera is he's a very strategic person he's a very um he can be manipulative and he backed down for no one right not even collins could get him to change his mind on things but we also have to look at mulcahy's relationship with collins because a lot of the tension like mulcahy himself wrote seems to come from the fact that broda didn't have a good avenue at collins because mulcahy put himself between the two men. Now, whether he did that voluntarily or he just did that because of his position, he still sides with Collins in the end. It seems that the two men worked well together because they crafted somewhat strong boundaries. Mulcahy's role was to organize and support the men on the ground, while Collins would gather intelligence and prompt direct action. At times, they would be in sync, and at times, Mulcahy would be urging caution while Collins was urging action. There was also tension between Mulcahy and members of the squad, tensions that Mulcahy seemed content to rely on Collins to resolve, but would later bite both men in the ass during the Civil War and beyond. At the end of the day, Collins and Mulcahy may not have had a close, warm friendship, but they had an effective, crisp business relationship, where Mulcahy trusted Collins with his life and the future of his country. And Collins trusted Mulcahy to deal with internal and external pressures and make sure the IRA didn't fall apart. While it certainly seems that Mulcahy admired Collins more than Collins admired Mulcahy, we cannot say that Collins was completely dismissive or distasteful of him. He knew he had a man he could count on in Mulcahy, and that was all that mattered. Another element we must consider in the fraying relationships between the three men was the effect stress was having on everyone. By 1921, the British were deploying their own flying columns, and the IRA were finding it ever more difficult to launch their own attacks. Collins' headquarters was raided in May 1921, and both the Dahl and GHQ made preparations should either body be arrested or killed en masse. On top of that, Mulcahy was facing the grave truth that the IRA were growing more brutal, and he was dealing with more and more cases of reprisals, assassinations, and executions. In the end, he gave permission for retaliation against British troops and British supporters, but only as a counter-reprisal, and he encouraged acts of arsons against houses that were used by the Black and Tans and auxiliaries. He issued a threat, an order threatening all who associated with the enemy with death. There would be a court inquiry, and there were different levels of punishment depending on the level of association, the highest punishment obviously being execution. The sentences were to be ratified by the brigade commanders, and reports were submitted to the adjutant general. 
Mulcahy was to be informed of all rulings, and he retained the right of final authorization in cases that needed a ruling from GHQ. He also took the responsibility for the executions of spies. This is particularly interesting considering his questionable uh, decision to use executions during the Civil War, which we'll talk about in another episode. Women spies proved to be a bit difficult for him, as he didn't want to execute them, so they ended up either taking or, or destroying their property. Mulcahy never issued an official statement regarding the shooting of prisoners of war, even though he was aware it happened frequently, and his good friend Liam Lynch pressured him to make an official policy. A truce was declared on July 11, 1921, but that didn't solve any of Mulcahy's problems. Instead, things grew exponentially more difficult. First, there was the issue of Austin's stats. In March 1918, the deputy chief of staff position was held in reserve for stats. After he escaped Strange Ways Prison, Manchester, in October 25, 1919, he took the position, but then, then resigned in 1920 to commit to the Department of Home Affairs. Then, in 1921, Stats assumed responsibilities of the deputy position again, even though Mulcahy no longer wanted him in that position. Instead, he went over Broder and Stats' head and appointed Eowyn O'Duffy. Broder responded by asking to recommission the members of the army, basically creating a new army, including a new GHQ, and he gave Ginger O'Connell the responsibility of chairing a commission on defense. He also cut Mulcahy out of all treaty negotiations. Mulcahy stood firm and continued to push for O'Duffy as deputy chief of staff. Broda assured Mulcahy he would retain the position of chief of staff, but Mulcahy wanted guarantees that he would be able to form his own staff. He wrote to Collins, who was in treaty land, and Collins wrote back saying that they needed to be an acknowledgement of the work which the old army put in, and that GHQ should have a meeting on November 25th, right before the cabinet GHQ meeting. During the cabinet GHQ meeting, civilian control over the army was reaffirmed, but the makeup of GHQ did not change. Instead, Mulcahy was given three adjutants, O'Connell, Stats as Deputy Chief of Staff, and O'Duffy as Deputy Chief of Staff, with the responsibility to act as Chief of Staff should anything happen to Mulcahy. Additionally, the full responsibilities of the Chief of Staff was still being discussed. The meeting was a seven-hour long nightmare for all parties involved. Mulcahy's staff and many officers closed ranks around him, and O'Duffy considered the entire affair a blemish to his honor. It is said that De Valera ended the meeting by shouting, Ye may mutiny if ye like, but Ireland will give me another army. So even though De Valera did claim victory, it was clear his military would continue to act as it wished. And was a The second issue was the W.G. Robbie affair. Robbie had been an ex-British officer who owned typewriters. These typewriters had once been the property of the British, so the IRA took them. Robbie fired his secretary, thinking she had snitched the IRA, and then he was chased out of Ireland by the IRA. I think this was like 1919, maybe? 1920-ish? By 1921, he wanted to return. Mulcahy handled Broda's complaint to Collins, and Broda wrote back, claiming that the handling of this case from start to finish displays an amateurishness that I thought we had long outgrown. He asked Mulcahy to take action at Collins. Mulcahy thought he handled the matter fine. So he wrote back to Broder. Broder then demanded that he give him an update on the affair within 24 hours. Obviously, he missed that date. So he wrote another letter to Mulcahy. Mulcahy wrote back, stating, I consider the tone of your letter of 30th July is very unfortunate. This just further enraged an already livid Broder, who wrote back, The latter's, which is Collins's memo, of July 29th was not the result of your note of the 12th, but of mine of July 28th, 16 days later. What good purpose was served by your writing five weeks after the event is probably best known to yourself. To me, it seems a further development of that presumption on your part that prompted you to ignore for some months past the duly appointed Deputy Chief of Staff, Stack. 
However, before you are very much older, my friend, I shall show you that I have very little intention of taking dictation from you as to how I should reprove inefficiencies, negligence on the part of yourself or the director of intelligence, Collins, as I have of allowing you to appoint a deputy chief of staff of your own choosing. Exasperated and most likely furious, Mulcahy brought the matter up to Dev. He wrote, I cannot usefully discuss any matter of the Minister of Defense, and in view of the spirit in which the endorsement of the 7th September is written, I cannot accede to his request to preside at or be present at any meeting of the staff. All of these quotes are from Patriot O'Coin's biography on Richard Mulcahy. Broda gave a half-hearted apology, and Mulcahy received his protest, and then Broda suspended him. <laughs> Valera interceded, Mulcahy and Broda met again, in which Broda supposedly wept in frustration and explained that he could do no wrong, which Mulcahy was supposed to take as meaning he had only the best of intentions. But Mulcahy's problems with Broda didn't end there. In December, right before the treaty debate, Broda dismissed Mulcahy again and replaced him with stats. Dismissal did not stick. While all of that was going on, uh, Mulcahy and GHQ was, was using the truce to prepare the army for resumption of conflict should the treaty fail. They were facing the dual problem of broken momentum and extremely lax discipline. They also used the truce to fix their constant lack of arms, despite the British believing this broke the truce. The IRA also recruited during the truce, and they set up official officer training camps and began to replace less than stellar commanders. Mulcahy would always have a bad luck when he came to reorganizing the army. Either that, or he always picked the worst times to do it. While trying to stress the need for discipline, he also undercut his argument by saying that men had to be ready to resume conflict at a moment's notice. This led to deep frustration and anxiety within the men, who were prepared for a war that never came. Since they didn't have a battle or an enemy to take their frustrations on, they, they had no way of blowing off steam. You would start to see the type of discipline problems that became common during the Civil War, but at the time refused to acknowledge it or felt he couldn't acknowledge it because of the looming threat of a renewed war. People would complain to the president, the cabinet, and Mulcahy about lack of discipline. During these moments, Mulcahy would defend his men to the cabinet while turning over every rock to make sure the accusations were either true or false. However, his constant letters to his officers to investigate every complaint that came through created tension between him and his men. Another element that contributed to the army's lack of discipline was lack of funds and employment. Mulcahy did his best to create sources of income for his men, but could not prevent them from collecting money from the community. Also, the British complained to him about every time the IRA quote-unquote broke the truce. Mulcahy and most of the GHQ would support the treaty. Many people who knew him saw this as an unexpected betrayal and blamed Collins' hold on him. But Mulcahy was, as always, a practical man who knew the IRA's weaknesses better than anyone. He, kn he knew they could not win against the Imperial Army, that the entire IRA strategy had not been complete military victory, but to make the British blink before the Irish did. The British Empire gave in first, and this was the best they were going to get. To risk war with the vain idea they could ask for more was suicidal and reckless. The treaty was accepted on January 7, 1922, and Mulcahy was made part of the Free State Government as Minister of National Defense. He and Collins would work together once more to avoid civil war, and when that failed and Collins was killed, the responsibility for the survival of the Free State fell on Mulcahy's shoulders. I think the biggest takeaway uh, of Mulcahy's stint as IRA chief of staff was to make sure that the civilian and military channels of communication and civilian and military responsibilities are very, very clear. A lot of the headaches Mulcahy would experience um, come from this disconnect between what Broda 
was responsible for and capable of being responsible for and what Collins and Mulcahy were responsible for. And part of that comes from the president, De Valera, going to America without first establishing how much control the civilian government had over the army. Part of that comes from, I think, Griffith trusting Collins and Mulcahy to handle things and so he didn't interfere as much. Um, part of that, like I said earlier, I think comes from Broda's inability to exert his authority. Again, that could be because it's just not something that naturally came to Broda, and it's nothing against Broda. Or it could be that, you know, Collins and Mulcahy were just very difficult people, and he needed a hard-ass to keep them in line, and Broda was just not that hard-ass. Um, you needed De Valera to come in and try to rein them in, and by then it was too late because you had the treaty, you had the truce, and then the treaty, and then the civil war. I think the second takeaway is how difficult it is to instill a sense of discipline and grand strategy over guerrilla and insurgency forces. Um, And this is something that I just did some research in Central Asia, and it's for a different episode, but it's something that I think that comes up a lot, is this idea of how do you take scattered small units and try to organize them and try to coordinate them and how do you handle the different personalities different conflicting personalities of of different commanders and you know you have local unit pride and like how do you just kind of like meld them and force them to work together and how do you how do you install discipline how do you make sure that there there aren't excess and violence and there is excess and violence how do you respond to that and those are all things that okay was um, struggling with. I think I needed to do more research, but I'd like to really get into the nitty-gritty of what McKay was dealing on a daily basis and what Collins was dealing on on a daily basis. And it seems that Collins was a little bit more lenient when it came to excess violence and when it came to... um, He preferred action over inaction, whereas McKay seemed to have this very sense of, like, this is what we can do and this is what we can't do. And he would struggle trying to enforce that on the local units. Um, And we see that a lot towards 1920 and 1921 as more and more reprisals are happening, as more and more spies are being executed. He's really struggling, I think, with this decision of what does he allow, what does he not allow. And I think there is a sense of, like, what's happening? So I can't, like, prevent it completely. It's already happened. So then what are the measures I can put in place to, um, to limit it, how often it happens? And I think the other thing that he was struggling with was, you know, like Quark is very active. I know Quark is going to be very active. I know, you know, South Tipulary is going to be very active. I, you know, what is Rose Common doing, right? I don't mean to pick on these these regions, so don't come after me. I'm just pulling them randomly out of my head. But like trying to figure out, I have a finite amount of resources. How do I share these resources? Where are they going to be most useful? And of course, no one wants to hear that their unit or their region isn't worth the extra, you know, equipment. So how do you handle that? So what makes it really interesting to me is his disagreements with Broda. Because it, I think it's very clear that even though he himself is a very prickly person, um, there's there should be no illusions that Mulcahy was not an easy person to get along with. He was not an easy person to work with, it seems. He was able to um, to create relationships with commanders like Liam Lynch. He was able to work with people like Terrence McSweeney and guiding them towards, like, let's not do an Easter Rising type thing. Let's just focus on attacking a barracks and see if we can handle that first. Um, you know, <laughs> like... And he worked with Collins, who himself was not a very easy person to work with. His inability to work with Broda and De Valera, and even Stack, is very interesting to me. Because I don't think he was incapable. I just think that he he could be difficult if he, if he felt you were wasting his time. And I think that may have been poor Broda's, poor Broda's biggest, uh, quote-unquote, sin with, with Mulcahy. Is that Broda 
either couldn't keep up with him and Collins, or really Collins, because we have to remember too that Mulcahy admired Collins very deeply. And so it may have been a case of like, Broder just can't keep up, and Collins is doing all these things, and so I'm going to hitch my star, my wagon with Collins, because he's doing things, and you know, he lets me do things that I want to do, like organize and uh, demand for more paperwork. But it does seem that Broder was just, he just didn't work at the pace that Mulcahy wanted to work, and he didn't. He didn't bring things to Mulcahy's attention that seemed worthy of being brought up. Um, which, again, is very interesting to me, because Mulcahy is the only person I know who is asking for more reports to read. and He liked the bureaucratic minutia as long as it was within a military complex context, not the political. And I think there's a lot we can learn about this really interesting period and then in the early 20th century where it's clear that Mulcahy is trying to build a traditional army. Even though he's fighting a guerrilla war, a lot of his standards and a lot of his requirements fit more of a traditional, regular army. And that becomes even more interesting as we transition from, you know, the treaty period to the Civil War, and he's building this army for the free state. That really seemed to be his end goal. Now, whether he did it that way because, you know, we're, we just come out of World War One, and that's, you know, the template for how you fight a war, because I think the only really major conflict that he may have heard of um, before World War One, that's guerrilla in nature, is the Boer War. And maybe he heard about the death of Gordon in the Sudan. Um, but I don't think... It's kind of interesting to try to figure out how... Um, what, what, uh, what access he had to guerrilla warfare. Um, and it is interesting because I, I read a passage from the Townshed's book, The Republic, I think in episode 7 or 8, where he shows an understanding of a little bit of what Lawrence did in the desert. So he's you can see him learning, you can see him trying to develop this doctrine, um, but a lot of it is geared towards regular warfare. Even his desire to create a division is, is a step towards a regular army. I think another thing that we can take away from Mulcahy's stint as chief of staff is this, this tension between extreme violence and manageable violence. And again, I think this gets at the Collins squad way of approaching things versus the Mulcahy general headquarters way of approaching things. Um, in 1921, for sure, I think he has developed a sense of ruthlessness that we will see again during the Irish Civil War. Bloody Sunday, right? I don't think the Mulcahy of 1919 would have approved of Bloody Sunday. I don't think the Mulcahy of 1919 would have approved of reprisals or executions of spies. Even the concept, I mean, he had to decide if they were going to shoot prisoners of war, and he doesn't make this decision because the, tru the truce happens. But even this idea that we were going to shoot prisoners of war, I, I don't think 1919 Mulcahy would have wanted to have um, dealt with that reality of things. And so I think there's a really interesting development and something I'd like to trace. And I, I just really need to read his papers, basically. Um, but it would be really, really interesting to trace that development of like, 1919. So headbed is a bad thing because it's too violent and it distracts from the doll and it's going to you know, turn people against our cause. And then 1921, it's like, oh yeah, no, you can, you can compensate the property of spies. You can burn it down. You can commit arson against those who are helping the British, right? It's just a completely different person and a completely different approach to warfare. And we talked about this a little bit in our last episode about Mulcahy when he was in Frondosh. I think it's a poem who makes this argument that he really falls under the sway of Collins and he he tries to adopt this persona of being one of the tough guys and being a violent extremist. And again, we see that development here um, as he's trying to, again, keep up with Collins, but also create a persona that even if you didn't like him, 
if you were a commander of a unit in the IRA, you knew that even if you didn't like him, you still had to, to obey his order, right? He didn't need you to like him. He just needed you to listen to him, basically. And when you think of the type of men he had to, to wrangle, like Dan Breen or Seamus Tracy or Liam Lynch, right? You need to be a certain type. You need to have a certain type of persona to, to, uh, to control those type of people. It's just really fascinating to me because then you're going to see the same thing happen in the Civil War. He makes a lot of very controversial decisions during the Civil War, and I, I hadn't realized how many of his decisions are very similar to the decisions he makes in 1921. Thank you for joining us. Um, you can find our episodes on our website, www.samswarroom.com, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. We have a Twitter account, so follow us at AOASIMWarfare. We are also on Instagram now, so you can follow us there. Um, and the account name is The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. We have a Ko-Fi, which is also Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Um, and we launched a newsletter, so which you can sign up for either on our Twitter account or um, on the website. Until next time, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and stay safe.